0: Outside of the grounds of the United Nations in New York there is actually a wall that has this inscription from the prophet Isaiah and they will hammer their words into ploughs swords into ploughshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war There's one little problem with that that's out of Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2 they left out the first part of the verse when they put the wall up Because the first part of the verse says, and he, God, will judge between the nations. Not the United Nations. Our God will. He will render decisions for many people. It's a big difference. You see, our God is the God who is the God in control. Our God is the one who is writing history. He is the one who will bring healing to the nations. If you would... Grab your bulletins and pull out this insert, 66 ways we see Jesus in the Bible, because it's all about him. In Genesis, he was the word that created all things. In Exodus, he was the Passover lamb whose blood covers our sin. In Leviticus, he was the holy place. Where we would meet God. In Numbers, he was the pillar of fire by day and cloud by night. In Deuteronomy, he was the coming prophet greater than Moses. In Joshua, he was the conquering warrior. In judges, he was the one by whom we could do right in his eyes. In Ruth, he was our kinsman redeemer. In first and second Samuel, he was our shepherd king. In first and second kings, he was the only good king. In first and second chronicles, he was the one who would establish his kingdom. In Ezra, he was the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he was the wall builder. In Esther, he was the one in the presence of the throne room on our behalf. In Job, he was the living redeemer. In the Psalms, he is the one who hears our hearts cry. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom of the wise. In Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning in all of the madness. In Song of Solomon, he is our passion. In Isaiah, he was the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. In Jeremiah, he was the spirit who writes God's law on our hearts. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he was the river of life bringing healing to those nations. In Daniel, he was the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he was the faithful husband, In Joel, the restorer of all that the locusts had eaten. In Amos, he was the judge, I'm sorry, he was the burden bearer. In Obadiah, the judge of all years. In Jonah, he was the prophet that was cast into the sea that the storm might cease on our behalf. In Micah, he was the ruler born in Bethlehem. Nahum, the avenger, he was the real avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he was the reason to rejoice even in suffering. In Zephaniah, he is the great reformer. In Haggai, he is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he was the pierced son. And in Malachi, he was the son of righteousness. But we know as New Testament believers that that's just the beginning of the story. See, it's already finished, but not yet done. And it goes on into eternity because in Matthew, we see him as the king of the Jews. In Mark, we see him as the servant king. In Luke, we see him as a man born Christ the Lord. In John, we see him as the word in flesh. In Acts, we see him as the power of the spirit behind our witness. In Romans, we see him as the justifier. In 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see him at work in the church. In Galatians, he is our righteousness. In Ephesians, he is our divine power. In Philippians, he is the one who meets our every need. In Colossians, he is the one... Who created all things, the firstborn. In first and second Thessalonians, he is returning with a great cloud of witnesses. In first and second Timothy, we see him as the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. In Titus, he is our faithful pastor, in Philemon, the promoter of restoring us to service. In Hebrews, he is the great high priest. In James, he is the work in our faith. In first and second Peter, he is the cornerstone. In first, second and third, John. He is our righteous advocate. In Jude, we, will see, we see him as the one who presents us faultless with great joy. And in Re- Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's our Jesus. He's the one that will come back someday in all glory and every knee will bow. Now, why do I take the time to do that? We've shared that once before. It's because God is telling a great story and these next two weeks in Daniel, we're gonna be in in Daniel 9 and the next week in 9 and 10 are some of the most powerful prophecies about Christ you will ever see in this book, written hundreds of years before he came the first time. So although I'm really excited for next week, I'm excited for this powerful prayer time that we're gonna have this week. Because we're gonna look at one of the most powerful prayers in all of scripture. If you would, open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. It was the day's reading, so hopefully you've read through it once before you even got to church to prepare your hearts for worship. And we're going to look at this passage and see just how powerful prayer can be, especially as we look at its effect in next week. So look at Daniel 9, chapter starting in verse 1. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of." Ahasuerus of Midian descent, he who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the book the number of years which, we re- which were revealed by the word of the Lord t- to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem namely 70 years. So get this. Daniel, is he's an old man at this point. He's probably in his mid to late 80s. He is reading from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of his contemporaries who's probably already dead because he was an older man when, when the Babylonians came in and took over Jerusalem. They didn't take Jeremiah with him to Babylon. They left him there. And Jeremiah writes his book, the Pro- Jeremiah, out of the Bible, which is back to just to the left of where we are. It's a really long book he actually has it taken to the king at the time praying that it would the king would use or the king would read it and repent the king instead shreds it and throws it in the fire can you imagine being jeremiah you write out this whole scroll or he had his scribe do it and it gets ripped up and thrown in the fire i mean i freak out when i lose like a word document on my computer this was way worse He rewrites it, and at some point sends a a copy of it to the exiles in Babylon, and Daniel has it, and he's reading it, and he's studying it, and he's saying, oh, wow, Daniel said how long we were going to be here, 70 years, and he does the math, and he's like, there's only two or three years left, praise the Lord. He's pretty excited about the next couple years of his life. He's like, man, I wonder if I'm going to make it that long, because I'm that old. You got to remember that that Daniel is not written chronologically. We have just gone we've been back and forth in time throughout this throughout this letter because we've seen kings like Belshazzar in chapter 5 and we've seen the end of his life in chapter 7 and we've seen now we're looking back at Darius who we saw first in chapter 6 I think it was and now we see him again in chapter 9. So don't get confused with all because because it's not written chronologically, it's written to show six great events, the first six chapters, and then six great prophecies. That's the last six chapters. But Daniel, I love how it says here, what was Daniel doing during his life? Well, we know he was praying because we saw that we've seen that. We're going to see that again. And and he was thrown in the lion's den for it. But we see, look at how it says here. It says, so I set... I gave my attention, as the NASB says, so I gave my attention or I set my mind to the Lord to seek him in prayer and supplication with, sack, with fasting sackcloth and ashes. Now we don't really do the last two anymore, but we ought, but we ought to practice fasting, right? Fasting ought, most of the time and, and most rightly is out of like pr- fasting from food. It's anything, all fasting is, and I'm not going to teach on it today, but all fasting is, is it's, it's a couple of things. One, it could be removing things that are distracting you from focusing on the Lord. So if you're, spending a t- if you're spending more time on social media, or you're spending more time binge-watching Netflix, or you're spending four hours a day playing Fortnite, but you can't find 15 minutes to read the Word of God, you ought to fast from those things. But it's also something that, that, like depriving yourself of in food, not to earn God's favor, but simply to redirect your thoughts. So that rather than go, I'm hungry, let's eat, you say, I'm hungry, let's get into the word. That's what Daniel is doing at this point. Guys, if you're having a hard time hearing from the Lord, maybe you need to clear the channel. If you're sitting there going, man, I'm just not hearing much from him, and, and, and we all have seasons like that. I'm not standing up here going, I hear from him all the time the same way. I, we all have seasons where, where, our, where our reception is a little fuzzy, and we need to get retuned. You may be in one of those today. And that brings us to the, today's passage in today's message, which is a prayer for our future. Because what had happened is God's people had gotten really fuzzy, They had been living in rebellion for years, and so God, they've been living like the world for years, and so God said, good, I'm going to let the world come get you. And Babylon took them away, and now 60-something years later, we're looking towards the end of Daniel's life, and he is going to pray for revival. So here's the question for us today. How in this world will you ever find revival? How in this world will you ever find, in this world that's racing to hell, how are we going to find revival? Well, he tells us how. The first thing we must do is we have to admit our sin and repent. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time teaching on repentance, but we, we, we probably if you've been in church any length of time, one of the first sermons I heard was about repentance, and repen- repentance is turning from, right? It's turning around. It's a military term. You've heard, Maybe you've heard that message. I'll get into it a little bit more as we go, but, but it's way more than that. Repentance is not just feeling bad about your sin. It's not just feeling bad that you got caught doing something wrong. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. That's, that's godly sorrow. That's like when the Holy Spirit convicts you. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Feeling bad about things you've done wrong is not godly sorrow. It is not repentance unless you've experienced the Spirit's conviction. So let's look and see how Daniel tells us that we have to confess our sin and repent. Look at verse 4. He says, I'm going to read several, cha- or several verses here, several chapters. Wouldn't that be fun? I'm going to read several verses here, so keep up. It says, I prayed to the Lord, so I'm, in, I'm in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant loving kindness for those who, are, who, who love him and keep his commandment. So he starts with adoration. That's a great way to start praying. Start praising God for who he is and what he's done, right? But he quickly turns to confession. Look at verse 5, we have sinned committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people in the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds that they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, for we have not obeyed his vo- the voice of the Lord to walk in his teachings, which, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your, your law and turned aside not obeying your voice so the curse has been poured out on us along with an oath which is written in the law of Moses the servant of God for we have sinned against him guys he immediately it's interesting how he we see in Daniel's life he uses the personal pronouns we and us now i talked i think last week there's only like 3 people in scripture that don't appear to have ever sinned and one of them is obviously Jesus. The other one is Joseph, if you don't consider how he treated his brothers a sin. And Daniel. And yet, and yet even he knows. He knows I'm a sinner. Right? And he's confessing his, his, he's not saying, God, you did this to me. He's saying, I've done this. We've done this. We have to get that that sin is our problem. And guys, we didn't just inherit it from Adam and Eve, although that is true. It is part of our DNA in this fallen world. We actively partner in sin, every one of us. We did not just get it passed down, we embrace it, we partner in it. And we have to acknowledge that before the Lord. We have to recognize that in every way, we have been polluted by sin. And that's why Christ came. That's the good news. Without the first part, the good news isn't very good. If you don't have a problem, what's the point of being saved? Right? If, if there's no sin, there's no need for Jesus. And we've spent a lot of time here at different times teaching on, well, then why does God allow that? So I'm not going to get derailed on that today. But guys, it's only our restoration is only found. Our restoration is only found in the light of repentance. If we don't recognize that we are sinners in need of a savior, we have not really come to Christ. Right? Confession of sin is our acknowledgement that we are in desperate need of a savior. So he starts there. I love too how repentance isn't just like I said, it's not just turning, it's, it's, it's Jesus often in the Bible, he says, in the, in the Gospels, he, he says, don't do that a lot. But he says, do this instead way more. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is not just stop that. Stop looking at porn. Stop playing video games that aren't that, are, that I shouldn't be doing. Stop whatever. Stop being mean to my wife. Stop not honoring, you know, not loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever. It's not just that. It's it's turning and going. Okay, what am I? What am I moving towards instead? Maybe you feel bad, but you feel bad about what? Maybe you're turning, but you're turning from what? Maybe you're moving, but you're moving towards who? I think it's in Malachi, I can't remember, but, but I think it's, he says, they, my people turned. They turned, they repented, but not upward. That was their problem. Jesus tells the story about this man who has been demon-possessed. And the demon is cast out. And so, 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 so picture, just, just, trans, just, just transfer the word demon to sin. So some sin issue in your life that you're struggling with. And you're like, okay, I'm, you know, we just went through this purity study, about 30 men in our church. And we're like, okay, we're done. We're going to honor the Lord with our bodies. We're going to honor the Lord with our minds. We're going to do this. We're going to stop doing it. But here's part of our problem. And we talked about this a lot in the study. What we'll do is we'll say, okay, stop that. But what Jesus says in that parable is he says, here's the problem. We clean house really well. We're going to clean up. We're going to throw everything away. We're going to do whatever. But we don't fill the house with God. So it says the demon comes back. The sin comes back and goes, man, there's a whole lot more room in here now. I'm going to invite my brothers and sisters' demons to come and take up residency too. And Jesus says, and that guy's worse than he was before. And that is the pattern of, a, of, a, of, an, of an unfully repentant person. A person that just, I feel bad, I need to do better, but they don't, they don't then fill the house with the things of God. Someone who is genuinely repentant, get this, someone who is genuinely repentant isn't seen by what they have stopped doing, but rather by what they have started doing differently. That's the difference. Someone who is not just sorrow, like God, our worldly sorrowful, but genuinely godly, broken. It's because man, you you will see that. I mean, guys, yeah. Eric Bailey. When when, when I first when we first started engaging together disi- and being in discipleship, that's what that's what turned Eric's life around. He's it wasn't just I'm sick of my sin. It was I will do whatever I have to do to fill my life with God. Tell me what to do, and he surrounded himself with men who would do it. Here's the thing, guys. What we're praying for as a church is revival. Prayer that comes out of our deep and desperate need for God, our acknowledgement that we are in desperate need of God, is what leads to revival. Lukewarm prayers or soft prayers or non-fervent prayers don't lead to revival because because, because we haven't gotten to a place where we really think we need Jesus to show up. And what I've been praying for all, day, all week about this specific Sunday is that Jesus will show up in powerful ways. You saw it as you walked in. Um, Wendy put it on our chalkboard this week. It says, Revival is a miraculous work of God where he stirs the hearts of his people to the glory of his name. That's what revival is. Revival is not freaky. It's not scary. It's not people speaking in tongues and getting slain in the Spirit. It's, it's, it, it's, it is, but it is the Spirit doing above and beyond anything we could ask or think, and we gotta make some room for him. Because we're too uptight. I, I mean, look at me. Like, just look at me, seriously. I am too uptight. (laughs) I was, I was, I knew somebody. I thought it would either be you or Jeff, but I knew it would be somebody. Thank you, Chad. So how in the world will you ever experience revival? For the first thing is we have to admit our sin and repent. The second thing is we acknowledge his righteousness. Look at what Daniel says. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. Verses 12 and 13, he says this, Thus he has confirmed his word which, we have spoken, which, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has never been done anything like what has been done to jerusalem as it is written in the law of moses all this calamity has come on us yet we have not sought the favor of the lord our god by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your god your truth now i'm going to take the time to do this because i think it's important for us to get the sense of the power of god's word Daniel lived, at this point, it's probably around 530 B.C. Let's back up a step, like almost a 1,000 years, to Moses. Moses led them out of the Promised Land in 1446 B.C. They get, to the, they get to there, they make a bad choice, the giants are too big, they say, we're not going in, so how long, did the, how long did they wander in the wilderness? 40 years. At the end of that 40 years, right before Moses goes to be with the Lord because he doesn't get to go into the promised land, he preaches three great sermons. Those sermons are recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is at 1406 B.C., 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Jesus is preaching these, or Moses is preaching these sermons to God's people, and I want you to turn, so keep your finger here because we're only going to be there for a second. Turn to Deuteronomy. It's your fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 30, and I'm going to read the first six verses. Because Moses was given this by God a thousand years before Daniel lived. So Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 1. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 1. It says, so it will be when, not, not if, it'll be when, all these things have come upon you the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all... Now, get this, guys. Remember, if, you have, if this is your first to here, I'm sorry, but um, just because it might be a little bit more confusing. But, um, but you got to remember, like what's happened? Assyria came and took over most of the nation of Israel. Babylon took them over and took over the rest of the nation of Israel and took a whole bunch of people with them all over their kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. Now, get this. A thousand years before Daniel, God says... And you will call them, so Moses is writing, and you will call them, God's people to mind, in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you. God's calling a shot a thousand years before. He's like, he's like you are going to rebel against me. You're not going to follow my word. And I am going to send nations to come get you. And then he says, in return, and, and, you, and you return to the Lord, your God, and obey him with all your heart. So now he's like, so if you then... In that time when when you're being gathered up and and taken to all these different nations, if you will repent, he he says, with all your heart and soul according to do all I command you today, you and your sons, then, here's the promise, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples of the world the Lord God has scattered you couple more verses. If you're outcasts at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will, God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. And that's what, guys, this is what happened. This is what is already, probably at this point in Daniel's life, it's already started. King Cyrus of the Persian empire then tells some of the people to start going back and rebuilding the temple. And we'll see that as we move forward in the rest of the book of Daniel. Says the Lord will bring you back to the land that your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will pro- you will prosper you, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Last verse. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, and the heart of your descendants. Get that descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you might live. The circumcision of the heart is the promise of the Holy Spirit for the New Testament believer. And I don't have time. I'm not going to go into that right now. But that's, that, that is throughout the, in, the, in, the um, in Joel, in Ezekiel. I read it as one of your 66 ways Jesus is, is listed in the Bible as part of that. It's, it's this circumcision of the heart is what the Holy Spirit does to New Testament believers when he comes into your life. He is now taking that heart of stone and turning it into a heart of f- flesh. So now let's get back to Daniel in verses 14 and 15. It says, therefore, verse 14 of Daniel 9, therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in respect to all our deeds, all his deeds which we have he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel owns it. I mean, Daniel, he's like, it's not just their problem, it's our problem. And now, O oh Lord our God. Who has brought, who, I'm sorry, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself to this day, we have sinned and have been wicked. We have sinned and been wicked. Guys, here's my question for you Does that last part of that verse, we have sinned and been wicked, is your first flinch to push away from that? Is your first flinch to go, not me? I haven't. I'm not really that bad. I'm better than that dude. Right, look at all the, I'm, I'm, I'm way better than Hitler. I'm better than most of the people I watch on the news. I'm be, right, is, that, is that your first flinch to go, I don't really feel like I've sinned against God. There's your problem. Honestly, there it is. That is the problem in the church today. We've sold a Jesus without selling our need, so the Jesus we've put on doesn't meet a need that's real. Because our need is that we are desperate and wicked sinners who need a savior who is overwhelmingly gracious and loving kind uh, in his loving kindness because why does the world not like the gospel message and why because of that they don't like to hear it from us because they don't want to be told this truth the church doesn't want to be told this church this truth the churches that, that, are, that are the biggest, not all of them, there's some really great gospel-preaching mega-churches out there. But a lot of them, it's because they, they, they skip the sin part and just jump right to the put on Jesus and your life will be better. Okay, but that's not why we put on Jesus. We put on Jesus because the plane is crashing, Amen. right? And if, we, and if we don't have Jesus on, we're burning up with everything else in the wreck. Right? And so, but here's the problem. Here's what's, here's what's going on now. I, maybe I mentioned this last week or a couple weeks ago. I don't remember. It's this what sells now is you're good, I'm good. And as long as your good doesn't interfere with my good, then we're good. Like, so, so there's no need to worry. And, and that's even in the church. The problem is, what's interesting is, we're starting to watch this, you're good and I'm good. And they're not, I'm talking about unbiblical things. And those, those goods are are conflicting, and so now even those groups are starting to fight because they're going, wait a minute, what you, th- what you believe that isn't godly and what I believe that isn't godly come up against each other, but what we've been telling each other is you have the freedom to believe whatever you want. You have the freedom to act however you want, right up until it comes up against what I want. And now they're stuck because what they don't have is this to go, yeah, but what does this say? What does God want? That's the question. Jesus said, guys, First thing, Mark 1:15. He comes on the scene before the Sermon on the Mount, before any of that stuff. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. He's like, admit that you're a sinner. Turn around and move towards me. And we just have skipped that. Right? But guys, the first call of the Christian is not behave. It's not change your behavior. It's not even believe it's behold. What he was saying was, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at, the, look at the majesty of all I've done. And from there, believe and live a life in keeping with repentance. That's what we're to do. But does knowing the glory of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, does it drop us to our knees? Does it shake us up? Or do we just kind of go, yeah, okay, I know God's big and he's, all, and he's awesome and I thank you for his grace and I'm here, so why are you yelling at me again, Doug? Because we ought to be just, not broken. We, we, we shouldn't stay broken and wallowing in our sin. God's grace is all sufficient. He did tear the veil like we sang. He has invited us into the throne of God. But we, but, so we, we don't want to wallow in, oh, I'm just a big sinner. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, to we, if we don't regularly confess Our need for Jesus, we've got a serious heart problem. Like serious heart problem. Because revival does not come to a nation. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for revival in our nation. Revival has never come to a nation, ever. Revival comes to people, God's people, Right? Now, now we might have experienced revival in our nation during the First Great Awakening, but that's because this dude named Jonathan Edwards and some of his friends like George Whitfield, were preaching the truth of things like sinners in the hands of an angry God. How would that sell today? In fact, it kicked him out of his own church. Jonathan Edwards got fired. Most popular preacher, the man who was responsible for the First Great Awakening. I mean, it was the power of the Spirit, obviously, in him. And he got fired from his church because I just didn't preach, brother. So if revival is a miraculous work of God where he stirs the hearts of his people to the glory of his name, and the world at its worst needs the church at its best, how do we get there? How do we experience revival? We have to admit our sin and repent. We have to acknowledge his righteousness. And our last point, we have to ask him to heal our hearts in his redemption. We have to ask him to heal our hearts in his redemption. And guys, no matter how many times you do it, here's the beauty of Jesus. He will do it. He will not come to this, he's not going to come to this point. If your heart is sincere and you are genuinely repentant, he's not going to say, I've heard enough of you, Doug. Stop. He's going to say just the opposite. Come. Come to me. I know you're weary and heavy laden. I get that you're trying to do this in your own strength, Doug. Just lay it down. Just lay it down and pick up my cross. Look up. Prayer is an admission of our desperate dependence. And in just a few minutes, we're going to have a chance to respond in prayer and in ways however the Holy Spirit leads you to do that. Kind of like what, you sh- what um, um, Sean and Teresa shared, just praying for how the Holy Spirit might lead you and it might just lead you to sit at your, at your seat and that's okay too. But look at what Daniel is led to do. Pick it up in verse 16. So get the scene. Old man, he knows, he knows that the 70 years of their captivity is almost done. He, he believes God's promise is that he's going to deliver them. And yet look at how passionately he prays. O Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. He's saying, God, he's saying God's people have brought God shame, and He leaves us here to bring God glory. Right? If 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 we're if you're here and you're His, He has a purpose, and guess what His purpose is? It's it is not your comfort. It is His glory. That's his purpose. And then he says, verse 17, So now, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the supplication, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Guys, take this away from the nation of Israel. Take this away from the church. Take this away from the United States. Just in your own heart. What did did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 6? Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you that, you, that you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Guys, when he says here, let your face shine in your desolate sanctuary, you should be thinking of you. Not this room, not the nation, not your family. You should be thinking of you. You are the temple of the living God. Let his face shine on you. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolation in the city that has been called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Why is this man of God, who knows the promise is coming, that they're going to be delivered, why is he praying so passionately? Two reasons. One, because his heart is moved by the power of the promises of God. He's reading Jeremiah. I mean, imagine him. He's up there. He's he's pouring his heart out over this amazing scroll, and he sees this promise, and he's like, I I know how I am. I know how we are, and you are so good. This isn't forever. This is just for now. And I'm just excited that you're going to restore us, Lord. And so he has moved by this promise, this word of promise, it is, it, is, it, is, it is smashing his heart. It is crushing the Daniel out of Daniel. And then here's the other reason, and we'll see this more next week, so you've got to come back, I'm telling you. It's, it's not because of anything I'm going to say, but because of what this word is going to say next week is crazy. I mean, like outside of believing that God is sovereign over all things, you will not believe what you're going to hear next week out of the word of God. It's because Daniel has come to believe that our prayers, and this is what we'll see next week, partner with God on his mission. Charles Spurgeon said, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. God is sovereign. Everything is, he knew the, the seven years had been planned out, so why pray about it? Because he knows that somehow in the great mystery of all things in the spiritual realm, that our prayers partner with God fulfilling His plan. Spurgeon went on to say, the same God that ordains the outcome ordains the means to the outcome, and part of the means are our prayers. So Daniel finishes praying, our last verse today. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Guys, that's why we should come to him in prayer. That's why we gather So that's what this whole morning has already been about and it's going to be about for the rest of the morning. And and prayerfully as we leave here for our lives, it is for the fame and the glory of His name. Because we don't come here to gather together just because we enjoy each other's fellowship, although we do. We come here because together we experience the glory of God for His fame, not for ours. For his reputation, not for ours. For his glory, not for ours. But we have to pray bold. because we, we have to be willing to get out of our own way and out of his. You see how Daniel prays these bold prayers. I, I was so convicted when I read this, I thought, how many of my prayer lists... My prayer time, and and guys, and there's nothing wrong with praying for personal healing, help, comfort. Absolutely, it's everything right with that. Jesus, Paul tells us that over and over in the New Testament. But ultimately, how many of your prayers, my prayers, have any kingdom, eternal significance? He's not praying, Lord. You know, just let me live until I'm. You know, let me live long enough to actually see this happen. He's just saying, Lord, I'm, bl- I'm bl- praying, believing it's going to happen because you will be glorified when it does. Do I pray that way? As the music team comes up and the lights come down, I want to point you to one of our table talk questions. It's on the back of your connecting points. It says, how are you doing at owning your own junk? Are you quicker to notice and criticize the sins of others then you are acknowledging, confessing, and repenting of the sins of self. As the team plays the song, and then I'm going to come back up and kind of walk us through what our time... We're, gonna, we're not taking communion today like we normally would. We're going to have a time of prayer. And I'll walk you through kind of what that could look like in a variety of spirit-led ways. Um, I would ask you to a- just ask that question of yourself. How am I doing... How am I doing at praying that dangerous prayer that David prayed? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead us in the everlasting way. Let that be your prayer. In Jesus' name.